All right, good morning. I'm Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. If you're visiting today, I want to let you know that we're a church um, that seeks to find life together in the depths of the triune God. And uh, part of what we mean by that is that God is a mystery and is great and far beyond our comprehension. Um, and yet he has revealed himself to us and invites us to know him and find our life in him. And that's an ongoing journey that takes our whole lives and beyond. And so we're on that journey together, and we'd love for you, wherever you are in that journey, uh, if you're still asking questions, not sure what you think about God on the whole, we'd love to talk to you about that and hear your questions. And uh, often there's a lot of pain that's mixed in with those questions, and we're a place that hopes to hear that as well and uh, walk with you through that. Um, we'd love to continue worshiping with you, but also if you want to join us in one of our homes uh, we have home groups that meet every week and uh, study scripture and pray and discuss, and uh, that's a great place to be known more fully and to get to know us as well. So we are glad you're here. Um, we're going to dive into the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, I encourage you to do that. There are Bibles in front of you in the pews if you want to use one of those. Um we're continuing uh, in this series, so we're picking up just where we left off uh, last week, although I did skip a few verses that I would love to comment on another time. Um, so if you notice that I've skipped a few verses from last week, don't don't think that there's some malicious reason for that. It's just that um, there's so much to cover and um, I didn't get to that. So uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you um, this morning and we ask that as you have spoken to us in your word, that your spirit would open our hearts to receive it and to believe in Christ and to um, repent of our sin 
and to follow after him. I know that some of us uh, here today may be hearing this good news of Jesus for the first time, and so uh, help us to receive that. But many of us are here to remember what we so easily forget. So help us to hear this good news again and afresh and to believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we all need a little help, don't we? We all need help in all sorts of ways for all sorts of things. Children are really good at knowing they need help, and they're good at asking for help, aren't they? They recognize they can't do a lot of things, and so they ask, sometimes incessantly, but they ask for help. As, it gets, uh, as we get older, it gets a little more confusing when it comes to help. Some of us ask for help still because we are refusing to grow up in some area of our life. Rather than learning to do things, we just keep depending on other people. Some of us need help, but we think that we are too grown up to need it. But most of us, I'd say probably all of us, don't know the help that we really need. I remember years ago, uh, we needed a new floor in my kitchen, and I had a plan and figured out how I'd do that and began to rip up the old floor to find, I think it was asbestos or something underneath, and then I suddenly thought, okay, well, I can just go about it this way, and Sally said, no, I don't think that's going to work. We need to ask for help. Finally, we called Seth, and I thought, okay, Seth, I just need a little advice here on how to deal with this, and he said, that's, you're gonna, you need more help than you realize, and he stayed with us for six hours for the rest of the day to replace our kitchen floor. You remember that? Uh, I didn't know how much help I needed. Um, now, that's a small thing, but when I went into sabbatical, it wasn't a small thing that Seth helped. It was a small uh, area where I needed help. Um, when I went into sabbatical, I knew I needed some help. I think I told you all I needed some help. I was a little bit lost. And as I began to meet with a coach, a, a spiritual director, a mentor, and he began to sit down with me and talk to me, uh, I realized, oh, I need help I didn't know I needed. Um, my, my problems, my frustration, my disappointment, my way of being in the world is not what it needs to be. And this is a deeper problem than I realized. And I think that's true for most of us. We all need help, but very often we don't see the help we need. We actually need help seeing the help that we need, if that makes sense. And so the good news today is that Jesus is the greatest helper to those in need that we could ever ask for because he is our sympathetic high priest. That seems maybe a little weird. We'll dig into what that's all about. But Hebrews is a weird book. We've been in this book for a couple weeks now, and we've been learning every week that Christ is greater. That's the argument over and over and over again of Hebrews. Christ is greater. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. Now we're moving into the part of the book where we see that he is greater than Aaron, who was the high priest of Israel. And by implication, this book argues that Jesus is greater than all other religions and ideologies. Christ is supreme over all things. That's the message of this book or the argument of this book. And last week we had a difficult passage where we were warned about the danger of apostasy, about being part of God's people, the visible church, and yet turning away, not continuing in faith. And we were warned not to follow the path of Israel, which came out of Egypt, out of slavery, and then died in the wilderness because they refused to trust God and enter into his rest. And so this week, we begin to tackle the question of how we can persevere in our lives, in faith, 
in the face of suffering. How do we enter God's rest, especially when the way is hard? Now, suffering, uh, if you think about it, is often the occasion that leads us to ask for help. Often we don't think we need help. We're going about our life just fine uh, until struggles and stress and pain come into our lives and suddenly we realize we need help. We're not getting along fine. We need resources. We need counsel. We need something, right? Relationships break down. Our emotional well-being breaks down. Our finances are a mess. Whatever it might be, as we begin to suffer, we say, I need help. We look around. And so I want you to stop and pause a moment this morning and think about where you are suffering. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's heartache. Maybe it's broken relationships. Maybe it's stress that you're facing, or maybe it's your health. Could be any number of things. And the question I want you to think about is where are you turning for help? How are you going to make it through this? Can God help you? And what does it look like for God to help you? So today, as we think about the challenge of persevering in the face of suffering, I I want us to also consider this question of can Jesus help us? Because I know that there is a skepticism that is inherent in us, that God actually and that Christ can actually help us in what we are facing. But I want to argue today that Jesus is the great high priest. And because of that, we must persevere in faith as we pray to God the Father amidst our suffering. So we're going to look at Jesus as our great high priest. We're going to talk about his priestly role, his qualifications, and his work. Those are our three points this morning. So first, Jesus' priestly role. And uh, I want you to uh, walk away uh, this morning with this key word. Um, Jesus is our broker. I don't mean that to be funny. I, I'm, that's a word for what he is. He brokers a relationship. Verses four, or uh, excuse me, verses 14 in chapter 4 uh, reads this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, I I said earlier that um, the previous section argued that Jesus is greater than Moses, and now we're moving into this argument that Jesus is greater than Aaron. Aaron was the high priest of Israel. He was Moses' brother. He was the first high priest of Israel. When they came out of slavery, uh, out of Egypt, and God established a covenant with Israel, and he uh, told them how to build the tabernacle where God promised to dwell with them. He established a priesthood and Aaron was the family of priests and he was the first high priest. That is the priest for the priests and all of Israel. He represented everyone. And once a year, he would um, lead a ceremony of worship and sacrifices that would cleanse Israel and enable him to go into the most holy place to the very throne room of God, where God dwelt with Israel and to represent Israel, to to bring all Israel, so to speak, through him into the presence of Yahweh. And it's that language that is being echoed here in verse 14, that Jesus is actually superior to Aaron because it says he passed through the heavens. The heavens being this symbolic uh, veil or curtain that, um, that is between us and the very presence of God in heaven. Jesus passed through the heavens when he ascended after his resurrection. He goes through the real veil to the true temple into the presence of God. He is our great high priest. Now, what in the world is a priest for? That's kind of a weird thing. We don't think about priests today. Uh, We don't typically talk about having priests. Uh, Back in the ancient world, every nation and religion had priests, um, special mediators, brokers. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, 
that priests act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's a good, helpful definition of what a priest is about. He is a mediator. He stands between two parties. He brokers a relationship. He brings one party to the other and the other party to the one. We have brokers today. Um, if you've ever bought a house, you have a realtor. That's a broker. Bringing the, sale, the seller and the buyer together, helping them negotiate a, a business contract of some sort. There are other brokers and uh, in the ancient world, brokers were incredibly common. In fact, in collectivist cultures today, brokers are still very common. They are people who establish a relationship usually between a patron, that is a person of prominence and power and wealth, and that patron's clients, those who um, receive help from the patron and uh, in, in turn show honor to that patron, gratitude, often doing favors for that patron. This is uh, woven into the social structure of collectivist cultures, and it was true in Israel's day as well. So brokers bring parties together, but they also maintain those relationships and repair rifts in those relationships between patrons and clients. Um, just to give an, kind of an example of this today, because I think it still happens even in individualist culture like America, um, I remember my brother-in-law needed to travel uh, um, out of country at one point, and he had to get his passport updated, or maybe he had to get it for his kids. And um, and when he went to find out how long that would take, he found out it was supposed to take six months or something like that at the time, and the trip was in a month. And he said, oh no, what am I going to do? And so he called up his senator and his senator's office. First of all, there were brokers there. There were people who stood between him and the senator, and helped connect him with the senator and the senator's people contacted the Homeland Security, whoever does passports, and uh, and was able to expedite it and, and get it done faster. That's a broker. Um, that's someone who stands between two parties, one of great power and navigates a relationship. And, you know, we whenever you call into a big company and you have to talk to a machine, you know what I'm talking about? You wish you had a broker, don't you? You're like, I wish I had someone who could just hear me and see me, understand my need, go, go represent me to the powers that be, right? That's what a priest does. He mediates, he brokers a relationship. Now, we, we like those sorts of brokers that we just mentioned here a second ago, but often we, as Westerners, don't really like the concept of brokers because we are very egalitarian. We're very, um, you know, everybody should just be able to go up to anybody else. We're all the same here. Um, I remember when I was buying a house, my first house, how frustrated I was, I had to go through a realtor. I just wanted to go up to the people that were selling the house and go, hey, I'd like to buy this house. Let's just work together and we can work this out. Um, I didn't want to work through a broker, but um, I think that's very much rooted in our cultural values uh, where we really try to downplay rank and honor and we don't really notice or we try not to really notice the differences between people in terms of their power and importance. We we rightly say everybody is equal in their value and dignity, but that leads to a flattening of all people. And so um, it's kind of offensive in one sense for us to think that we need a broker in order to approach a certain person. But um, we do need a priest. We do need a broker when it comes to relating to God. And that's uh, for two reasons. First, um, we are of much lower rank than God. We are, we're creatures. He created us, right? Um, some of you watched The Crown. It's a show that Sally and I just finished and have thoroughly enjoyed uh, about the Queen of England or really about the crown that she wears. And, um, you know, you're not really supposed to go up 
and touch or address the queen unless she addresses you or extends her hand to you, right? If you just walked up and be like, how you doing there? And, you know, put your arm around her or shake her hand, that would, or, well, I guess she's no longer here, but the, the king, it would be inappropriate, right? You don't just approach that person. There's a certain distance that is required unless her people say, okay, the queen will see you and they bring you in and then you can uh, address um, the royalty, right? Um, and But even on a smaller level, many of you have this with your boss uh, or some boss in the organization. You can't just walk up to the CEO of Wake Forest Baptist, just walk right into the office, you know, if you work at Wake Forest Baptist and just say, all right, hey, I got, I got some problems with the way you're running things, right? You can't do that. You got to make an appointment with the um, administrative assistant. Um, there are people in between you and the boss, right? Because there's a, there's a rank difference there. And you don't just have access by being a person, okay? So that's one thing. We need, we need a mediator to get to God. But more than that, we have dishonored God, who is our patron. That is the message of, of Scripture over and over again. We have dishonored God, who is our patron. He created us, and yet we have not honored him or given him thanks as we should. We have dishonored him in many ways. We are like ungrateful children who... Um, insult and dishonor our parents and blame them for any problems we face um, and don't say thank you for the fact that they gave us life. Um, that, that is what we are like to our, our God who made us. But Jesus, we are told, is the better high priest. And um, we see this in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where it says, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, what is being said here is general about all priests, that they uh, represent men um, to God, and they offer sacrifices, it says, to cleanse and to forgive and to set free. Um, but priests also in Israel would care for people. It says here that um, they can deal gently with people because they're also human. They also were beset with weaknesses in the way that they bring that party to God. They have their own troubles, their own shortcomings, and so they can deal gently with other people. Um, but in verse 16, the effect of Jesus' high priestly ministry is to draw us near to God, to, to uh, bring us into the very presence of God so that we can pray to him and ask him for help in time of need. We'll talk about more of that in a moment. But I want you to see first that Jesus' role is to serve as a broker between us and God, the Father, who can help us. Now, you might say, okay, um, but why does it have to be Jesus? Right? There's lots of religions out there. There's lots of people who are different. Why does it have to be Jesus that's the broker? Why can't I find my own broker? Maybe there are more brokers than one. Who says that he's the broker? Can't, can't there be others? And really what makes Jesus qualified anyway? And that's the next thing I want us to look at today is the qualifications of Jesus to be our broker. And there are two reasons given. I'm going to focus on the second. But the first reason that is given is that God himself appointed Jesus. And that's a point that needs to be made today in, the, in a pluralistic world where we would like to go to God in our own ways. The author of Hebrews tells us that God appointed Jesus. In verse 1 of chapter 5, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. Right? Brokers in the ancient world were often friends or clients of a patron, but in the best of cases, the patron, or excuse me, the broker was the actual son of the patron. If you had the son as your broker, 
you were uh, almost guaranteed to be brought in and get the favor of the patron. And Hebrews tells us that God appointed his son as the priest, as the broker in verses five through seven. And he shows us this by quoting from the Psalms. First Psalm chapter two, which was quoted earlier in the book to talk about how Jesus is the king over all creation. God says, I have begotten thee today. And he's, he's talking about um, investing Jesus with royal authority as his anointed king. But here, the author of Hebrews connects this to Jesus's priesthood. And in Psalm 110, the next Psalm that he quotes, he shows why he's connecting Psalm 2, not just to kingship, but to priesthood. He's showing that Jesus belongs to an order of priests that precedes the order of Aaron, precedes the Levitical system and all that went on in Exodus. And he alludes to, and we'll see this more in chapter 7, he alludes to this man named Melchizedek, who was a king of Salem, but also a priest of the Most High God. And the author of Hebrews says Jesus is also a priest, unlike the Davidic and Mosaic system, where the king and the priest were separate roles and they were not to be blended together with Jesus in the new covenant. Jesus belongs to this order of priests that predates the Levitical priesthood, and he is a priest forever, it says. So Jesus was appointed by God as our high priest, as our broker, and he has this priesthood forever. And um, it's important just that we stop for a moment and apply what this means for us, which is that God knows the help that we need and he appoints the appropriate broker for us. One of the reasons we don't get to choose our path to God is that we don't understand the help that we need. And Jesus has supplied everything, or excuse me, God has supplied everything we need in Jesus Christ. He assigned Jesus this role. Jesus is the one that brings us into the presence of the Father. We don't get to choose our path to God. And we'll talk about why in, uh, even more in a moment. But the second qualification I want to highlight here that the author mentions is that Jesus's priesthood is not merely grounded in his being the son of God. Right? Think about that. He's, he's not merely the priest because he is the son of God. It says that he is also our great high priest because he can sympathize with our human condition. He says in verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus became like us. The Son of God came into the world and was incarnate and took on human flesh. And so God knows from experience, from actually taking on a human body, what it feels like to be weak and what it feels like to face temptation in our lives. Weakness and temptation. Jesus lived as a finite man with all the human frailties that you and I face. Now, that, that's important that we say that because often we think, that, that, how can that be? He was God. So whatever he was doing in the world, it wasn't like us, really. Um, now, I know the incarnation is a great mystery and that Jesus was God incarnate, but we are told that Jesus lived a creaturely life. He faced hunger and limitations and uh, emotions and confusion and weariness, all the things that are wrapped up in an embodied existence, Jesus experienced a truly human life. And the power that he had exhibited in his life came from living, submitted to, and surrendered to the Holy Spirit. So he did not act out of his divine nature, so to speak, uh, and just not really ever experience frailty and human weakness. He experienced weakness, just like you and me. And further than that, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin, we are told. Now, um, this is a tough issue to navigate. Uh, we, we talk about the impeccability of Jesus. 
And when we talk about the impeccability of Jesus, we are saying he was able to be tempted from the, uh, from the outside, not internally because of distorted desires like we are often tempted. He was able to be tempted as a human externally. You know, it, it, he was invited to um, live in certain ways that are distorted and to satisfy his good desires in wrong ways from outside. But he was not able to sin in the sense that he is God incarnate and it would live a perfect life because of who he was. Yet he had a real human nature. He did not sin, even though he could have physically done things that were sinful in moving his body around. This is a complicated issue. Maybe I need to talk about more of this after if you want to ask me about it. But the author of Hebrews is telling us Jesus knows what it's like to face temptation in all the ways that you do. And it says that um, he was authenticated as perfect after learning obedience through suffering. Look at verses 7 and 8 in chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I think this is a reference here to Jesus' whole life, that he, he struggled and he lived through hard things his whole life, but I think there is a special eye here towards Jesus' temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified where he, in anguish, prayed that God would remove that cup from him, that he would not have to suffer the torments of the cross, the abandonment of the cross, um, and yet um, that was God's will, and so he had to proceed. But the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus entered into perfection. It's not that he was not perfect before. It was that he was unconfirmed in his perfection. It was through going through this suffering and obeying and persevering through it and living obediently to God and all the pressures of life through all those temptations that he was confirmed as perfect. Now that's important because what it means is that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest to you, not just because he's the son of God, but because he actually lived a human life and he has gone through trials just like the trials that you go through. He has had to face them and as C.S. Lewis points out, um, those who give in to temptation have never experienced temptation to the fullest degree because um, the, the more you say no to sinful desires, the harder and more fierce that temptation gets. And so you might say, well, he's God. He didn't really, you know, it's not really hard for him. But no, the more he said no to sin, the harder that temptation pressed in on him, the more difficult it became. And yet Jesus persevered to the end and never sinned. So he can sympathize with your weaknesses and the temptations that you face and the suffering you experience. Why is that important? Well, I saw this video yesterday, um, and I, I'm sure you've seen things like this too. It was a video of a martial arts studio with a really young boy who was supposed to break a board by kicking it, bringing his leg down and kicking a board and, and breaking it. And all the other students are watching, and all these parents are crowded around, and he's a very little boy, I mean, five, four or five years old. And um, the master's holding the board, and he, and he keeps kicking it. And when you first see him bring down his leg, it's like, this is never going to work. I mean, this kid cannot break this thing. And the master says, you know, you can do this. Come on. And he, he does it a second, third time. And, and uh, the master's kind of saying, come on, we, you can do this. Use your heel. Do it, bring it down. Stick it up high. Stand like that. And, and the boy starts getting upset. He starts crying. Then the other students start cheering for him. <laughs> So ridiculous. Oh, man. Uh, 
So anyway, they encourage him. Eventually, they help him do it, and, and he brings his foot down. He breaks the board, and they erupt, and they cheer, and they're all you know, mobbing him. And um, <laughs> man, I, was, I told Sally, I started crying, like, writing this, which is weird. I don't know what's going on. But the reason I find it so powerful is because um, the, the master saw the struggle, and he had been in that place before. He knew what the boy could do, and the boy didn't know what he could do. He didn't know he could get through that, right? And they, they encouraged him. They cheered him on, and they said, you, you can do this. And they helped him, showed him how to do it, and then he did it. And, man, everybody erupted, and the boy you know, lit up. And <laughs> that is the power of being seen by someone who knows what it's like and has gotten through it. And that's, I think that is what the author is telling us here. Jesus is a high priest that can sympathize with you because he has been in it and he has been through it. And that is something that can give you strength as you face the suffering in your life when you need help. So um, lastly, I want us to see what Jesus actually does for us. Um, and that's that he's our healer. He is our healer. Now, um, in verse 16 of chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus brokers Mercy and grace in our time of need. That's what he does for us. He brokers mercy and grace for us in our time of need. Um, but what help do we need? That's the question. Uh, as I said earlier, the help we need isn't always the help that we want. It's not always the help that we think we need. Um, usually, we just want our suffering to go away. That's the help we want, right? Just take this suffering away. Take this hardship. But Jesus wants to bring us healing and growth and maturity. Now, the word healing is not in this passage. So you might be saying, where are you getting this from? But it is, it is wrapped up in all that is said about Jesus' priestly work. And in Israel, the priests were associated with, with healing. That was sort of part of their ministry in the tabernacle was to inspect the sick when they came to him, to pray for them, to offer blessing. And there was often healing associated with the blessing of the priest. And Jesus' own ministry in his life, all the healings that he does are, are this part of this priestly work that he accomplishes through his ministry and death and resurrection. Because Isaiah tells us it is through his wounds that we are healed. You see how that connection is made? It is through his wounds that we are healed. That is his priestly role. And so that's what I want. I want us to read this with this lens that Jesus brings healing. He says in verse 16, let us with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus heals us. That's what he, his ministry is. And he does that in a lot of ways. He heals our alienation from God the Father, right? And so that's why we can pray boldly like like children, we can come to him and make bold requests with confidence because he has made a sacrifice for sin. Namely, he has given his own life and died on the cross for us. Um, he heals us of our sin and our death by becoming the source of eternal salvation, it says in verses 9 and 10, right? Unlike previous priests in Israel who brought temporary healing and peace with God through their sacrifices, Jesus brings an enduring salvation, one that goes on forever as he propitiates for our sin. He bears God's wrath. He cleanses us. He brings redemption, setting us free. He reconciles us to God. He adopts us into God's family, and he gives us eternal life, life from death. How does he do that? He does it all through offering his own life. He is not only the priest, 
who makes sacrifices for us, he is also the sacrifice. Um, he gives his own life and atones for our sins. He sheds his blood. He gives his body so that we can um, come through the veil into the presence of God, reconciled. We, we come to God represented by Jesus. He brings us there. He's our representative. He carries us into God's presence. He rose again in order to give us life eternal. So Jesus is the great high priest who brokers a relationship with us as our patron, bring us to our patron, but he's also doing that as one who can sympathize with us in our weakness, healing us of our sin. So returning to the um, question of suffering and needing help, what do we do with all this as I try to bring this to a close? Um, first, if you are suffering and looking for help, you need Jesus to help you endure. Now, that may seem so obvious, but as I prayed earlier, uh, we need to hear this over and over and over again because we forget it. It doesn't matter what struggle you are going through, whether it's depression or poverty or conflict or doubts or wounds or physical pain or whatever it might be, you need to come to Jesus and put your faith in him over and over again, entrusting yourself to him that he might help you in your time of need. And you can do that knowing that he sees you. He understands you. He has been through it all and he endured for you, right? And you might say, gosh, really, does he get the sort of thing I've been through? It's so odd. I'm not even sure it'd be possible in his day to go through the things I've been through just technologically, the way society changes, all that. But the thing is, he knows he knows the basic things that all of us face in life, and he, and he experienced those. He knows what it's like to be abandoned and not see, not see the help that he thinks he needs in the moment. He knows what it's like to pray and to cry out only to hear silence. He knows family tension and loss. He knows physical stress and exhaustion. He knows shame and humiliation. He knows horrible injustice where God was silent as he endured it. He knows incredible anxiety and God didn't relieve him. He knows deep disappointment and darkness, and yet God didn't immediately give him joy. Jesus didn't experience every single detail of your life, but he faced every aspect of the human experience and all the temptations that come with them, and he persevered to the end. So he sees what you are going through, and he can carry you through it if you entrust yourself to him because he made a sacrifice of his own life for your sins. But I also want us to see this morning that we should pray continually. That's uh, the great blessing of Christ as our high priest, that he gives us access to the Father. He's always praying for us in the presence of the Father, but we can go boldly to God's throne and ask for help. Just because you don't really fully know the help you need doesn't mean you shouldn't ask for the help you think you need. And you can be confident that God will give you what you need in your time of need. He hears you as you cry out for deliverance over and over and over again in uh, we were reading through Chronicles recently, and Israel makes a mess of their life, and they do all sorts of stupid stuff, and then they're in the, the midst of a battle, and they're about to be defeated, and they just throw up their hands and cry out to God, and he graciously intercedes for them and protects them. That is uh, the life that we should live as Christians. We should pray continually, and we should especially pray in times of need. Dependent, like Trevor was talking about earlier with our, um, our earlier reading, being poor in spirit. But then we do need to remember that the help we need and the help that God gives isn't always the help we think we need or what we want. We do need to hold on to that. God is good and he's always working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But that means sometimes we get help in ways that doesn't seem like it's going to help us. 
The deepest help that we need is being brought to God and being healed of our sin. We want an end to our suffering. We want it to be removed, but that's not always what we deeply need. And God offers us Jesus, which, again, doesn't seem like the thing we need, right? We want the world to just be healed instantly, and he sends his son to go die in it. That doesn't make sense on one level. But God gives us the help that we need. And one of the things that um, we need is to grow up. I don't mean that in a, in a talking down sort of way. I mean maturing. We all need to mature. And the reality is that life entails suffering and that growing and maturing requires suffering. Right? I mean, that just on a basic physical level, your muscles don't grow unless they're stressed. It hurts. You get sore. That's how they grow. All through life, you have to put stress on your body for it to grow up in a healthy way. In relationships, you can't mature unless you move into the stress of having hard conversations and working through conflict and being with people that are difficult for you and hearing criticism, right? All of those things are stressful. There's risk there. It's dangerous. It's a suffering. But you have to move into that if you want to grow. That's where God leads us. He leads us on the same path that his son lived a life of stress and suffering and difficulty. But we go into that knowing that God will raise us up because of what Christ has done, because he's already run the race perfectly ahead of us, and he will raise us up on the last day. Now, as we go to the Lord's table today, um, we, we eat this meal, um, and this meal in, in many ways harkens back to the priests of Israel. In Israel, the priests would take some of the sacrifice that we burnt on the altar, and he would prepare it as a meal to share with the people of God in the presence of God. And that is exactly what we are doing right here. We feast in God's presence since Jesus has brokered a relationship through his own body and blood dying on the cross for us. He atoned for our sin to heal us. And in the bread and wine, Christ is pictured and presented to us so that by the Holy Spirit, we might be um, carried up in Christ through these elements into the very presence of the Father. So I invite you to come and eat with me in faith and to continue holding on to our Savior together. Let's pray.